everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books podcast. My name is Ross McKeechee, and I'm very, very delighted today that we're joined by Jane Hirschfield. Before I get to Jane's formal intro, some Banyan announcements. Although we have people joining us from all over the world, the physical location of Banyan Books in Vancouver, BC is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Banyan Books and Sound is in its 50th anniversary this year, 50 years as Canada's spiritual and healing resource. We've been local and independent since 1970. We encourage everyone to please support your local independent bookstores. And of course, particularly Banyan Books, every time you make a purchase from Banyan, you support wonderful programming like tonight's event. You can visit us at banyan.com, B-A-N-Y-E-N.com, or come in in person at the corner of Fourth and Dunbar in Kitsilano, Vancouver. Be sure also to subscribe to this podcast on YouTube. Look for Banyan Books, subscribe and turn on your notifications so you know when the new videos come up, or you can follow us on any of the podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, and any other place you look for your podcasts. Okay. Our guest this evening is Jane Hirschfield. She is one of our most celebrated contemporary poets. She is the author of nine collections of poetry, author of two collections of essays, and has edited and co-translated four books collecting the work of world poets from the past. Her work encompasses a large range of influences, drawing from the sciences as well as the world's literary, intellectual, artistic, and spiritual traditions. Her first poem appeared in The Nation in 1973, shortly after she graduated from Princeton as a member of the university's first graduating class to include women. That poem won what would the next year become the Discovery Award. And at that point, our guest made the choice to set aside her writing for nearly eight years to study at the San Francisco Zen Center. In recent decades, Hirschfield has become increasingly known as a poet working at the intersection of poetry, the sciences, and the crisis of the biosphere. In 2017, in conjunction with the March for Science in Washington, DC, she founded Poets for Science, an interactive exhibit of science poems and writing invitation housed at Kent State's Wick Poetry Center. Her books have received the Poetry Center Book Award, the California Book Award, and the Donald Hall Jane Kenyon Prize in American Poetry as well as being finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and England's T.S. Eliot Prize. Hirschfield has received fellowships from the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Academy of American Poets. Her poems appear in a wide array of highly regarded publications and have been selected for 10 editions of the best American poetry. In 2004, our distinguished guest received the Academy Fellowship from the Academy of American Poets. And in 2012, she was elected a Chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. And then in 2019, she was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Today, Jane Hirschfield is with Banyan Books in conversation about her newest book, a collection of poetry titled Ledger. Robert Bonazzi, writing in World Literature Today, said this of Jane Hirschfield's work. Astonishing strophes of being. Jane Hirschfield stands with the finest contemporary American poets. In her books of prize-winning poetry, translations, and essays, one realizes her works are apertures into wisdom. Ladies and gentlemen, a warm welcome for Jane Hirschfield. Jane, thank you for being here. 
Well, thank you so much, Ross, for that um, warm introduction, which no one could possibly live up to their own, um, you know, accolades. Um, and I'm very happy to be here with you tonight. Thank you. We're so happy to have you. Now, um, if I can invite you to open, just so everybody knows, this is going to be a mix of Jane and I in, in conversation with a lot of uh, her readings from her from her poetry. So I'll invite you, Jane, to open with a poem. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, the first poem in the book, which is um, a kind of pre-first poem. They call them proem, and it appears before the official start of the book. I put it there because it indicates the, the through line in the book of concern for the biosphere, concern for climate, for social justice, for uh, human well-being and the well-being of all of us on this planet, uh, human and beyond human. Um, and it's a poem which wishes itself to become irrelevant. It's a poem trying to write itself into meaninglessness. Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke, we witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. Thank you. I read a quote from something you wrote for the National Writing Project where you said, why do I write? I write because to write a new sentence, let alone a new poem, is to cross the threshold into both a larger existence and a profound mystery. A thought was not there, then it is. An image, a story, an idea about what it is to be human did not exist, then it does. You go, on, you go on to say, every sentence that comes for a writer when actually writing, however imperfect, however inadequate, every sentence is a love poem mm -hmm. to this world and to our good luck at being here alive in it. What happens to you when you sit down to write and it's really flowing? Well, one of the things which happens is I vanish. Um, and the possibility of each word which arrives is all that exists. And, and I'm very fond of moments when I vanish because we are collaborative beings. We are, we are not narrow, willful, purpose-driven selves um, walking this earth in solitude. We are doing a great dance of existence with everything that has ever happened to us, everything that happens to others, with the great uh, baskets, the panniers of wisdom which are held in language itself, the music, the dancing, the joy of language itself, the grief of the history of every inch on earth and the radiance of every inch on earth. So when I begin writing a poem, I never know in advance, almost never, you know, I, I have different processes, but most of the time, I don't have anything in mind. I don't know what poem I'm going to write. I'm not setting out with a previously crafted intention. I have a kinesthetic sense that 
poetry is in the room with me and that if I listen to that inner voice, it will begin to speak. And I discover what it is that I and the world are thinking together over the process of writing the poem. And then over the process of revising the poem, which begins almost immediately, um, I am perhaps, I'm looking at what's on the page to see what has been said, and I'm trying to see what might want to be said from what has been, whether uh, the poem has found a direction uh, that perhaps was hidden inside the direction it thought it was taking, and then go with that. So all of it feels to me much more like a collaboration than an act of will, and a surrender to um, the mysterious larger knowledge that we all carry within us, but need to become a bit vulnerable, a bit permeable to actually be able to hear. When I'm talking, I'm not listening. When I'm listening, a larger available existence can emerge. Thank you. Would you share another poem with us? I, I, I have some suggestions, or if you have one top of mind, please. No, you, you may direct me. What would you like to hear? I really love homes. Ah. So in case anybody, I live north of San Francisco in California, and if anybody is um, startled by the Florida imagery that shows up from time to time in this book, Ledger, uh, it's because I spent a month writing uh, on Captiva Island in Florida. The painter Robert Rauschenberg's former estate now invites people to come work there for a month at a time. So I was there and I saw what this poem describes. Holmes. Wind this morning so strong, the borrowed Florida house shakes on its stilts over water. White pelicans, which do not resemble the spirit, write their single sentence straight through it, unhindered. Their rowing wings dipped long ago into some ink pot. Rapacity doesn't swerve before what it feasts on. To a knot fish, a bird is beauty. To a knot fish, hunger wrings out its morning swim towel and rehangs it. Yesterday's Russian drone taken video watched on computer. Window after window, glassless, glintless. Apartment blocks, streetlights, market squares, past plunged, deafened, unstoried. Three incomprehensible men look up, wave at the camera from inside their shirts' bright colors. Around them, the no longer city. It's no longer purses and breasts, esophagi, cell phones, slippers, suppers. No fish teeming world nor its spiraling wings can redeem this. No feather, shell, word, image redeem this. So the Syrian war was devastating for me to witness, you know, all, all through it. There, there are other poems in the book which respond to the Syrian civil war. I had been to Syria in 2007 with a small group of American writers who were uh, traveling through uh, several countries um, in that area. And the first place we went was Syria and we met with university students. We were guided by um, uh, one writer and then one anesthesiologist with very good English um, because they had to have a, a woman to accompany the women in certain, in certain places and areas. And she was magnificent. 
The war had not started in Syria in 2007. The war that was raging was next door in Iraq. And Syria was a country which had taken in 750,000 refugees. By the time I wrote this poem, I knew that all those university students who we had met with, their lives were utterly changed in ways I could not imagine whether they died on one side or died in another, whether they and their children were in some refugee camp or in the destroyed city of Homs, um, I couldn't know. But I knew their faces. I knew the conversations we'd had. And I have never gotten over it. So there I was in paradise and suddenly on my computer this this video of this destroyed city, and I didn't know what to make of it. It was a very difficult poem to end. I never did quite find an ending, but I had to put something, and so I put something. How have you found that poetry, The like what is the power you found that a poem can have on the reader uh, in terms of bringing awareness to something, but also as a healing mechanism and, and for you as the writer in, in creating it and also continuing to share it? Well, I think the great power of poetry is when you are, well, one of the great powers of poetry, when you are utterly overwhelmed and impotent and broken, if you can find your way to words, you are no longer entirely passive within your experience. And so the simple agency of description, of phrase, of acknowledgement, first private and then public, that is, you know, the word healing, the root of the word healing is wholeness. What is healed is not necessarily cured. The war, nobody's life was spared by my having written this poem. But by being able to acknowledge what I had seen, take it in, give it language, present in this poem the unbearable juxtaposition of great beauty and great horror that is unfathomable for us to take in, that at any given moment you can be living in a pelican-strewn paradise and witness such destruction, such utter destruction. The only way I know how to meet that experience is by bringing it into a poem. I often write poems when I'm bewildered and baffled and undone. And it's not that I am cured but I am perhaps made whole enough to take the next breath, to open my eyes the next morning, because I have not ignored the suffering. I have not shrugged before the suffering. So that's a partial answer. That's this poem's answer, perhaps. It's almost like you answered me with a, with a poem, <laughs> the way you spoke on it. Thank you. I'm wondering maybe if, if we could uh, hear another one that I really loved. It's called um, In Ulvik, huh. page 47. Yes, thank you. So in case anybody does not recognize the name, um, uh, In Ulvik begins with... Um, a, a sentence from a little biographical note about Olaf Hauge, and he was a great Norwegian poet. Um, and in Ulvik, and then the epigraph, he spent his whole life in Ulvik working as a gardener in his own orchard. I too would like to work as a gardener in my own orchard. Every Friday, I would pay myself a decent living wage taken in foldable cash from my own wallet. 
And sometimes if the weather was bad, I would give myself the day off and thank myself for my kindness and answer myself, it's nothing, nothing. Go on now, put your feet up, find somewhere warm. And then I would go back into my house and think of my kindness and wonder if my gardener was warm now also, and if I was right to let myself go away from my own orchards tending even so briefly. And each of us might be thinking too of the apples, cold and wet and hanging in outside wind and fattening on their own trees without us. And one of us first, then the other, might start to wonder a little while pushing a cut of cured apple wood into the fire about loneliness and separateness and what it is lives outside one person's skin and inside another's. I love that closing line, what it is that lives inside one person's skin and outside another's. What I didn't mention about Hauge is he was a great Norwegian poet who spent his whole life making his living on, on eight acres of inherited apple orchard, his family's apple orchard, um, but from time to time um, uh, would have complete breakdowns and check into mental institutions with profound depression. Um, uh, Robert Bly, who visited Hauge at home and, and described this in one of his uh, prose descriptions, uh, he said that, uh, Olaf Hauge had the best poetry library in Norway on his apple farm. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Did you ever meet Robert Bly? Oh, I knew Robert pretty well, yeah. Okay. Um, we, we, we coincided over the years. We taught together. He brought me in to teach at his, at his big conferences. We did a book together, uh, the Mirabai Ecstatic Poems uh, versions. That was his publisher, Beacon, after the great success of the Kabir book, had urged him to do a full book of Mirabai poems. He had done a little chapbook of them. And uh, 25 years later, they asked him again, and he said, well, I'll do it, but only if Jane Hirschfield does half. And I kept fighting him. I kept saying, no, 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 Mirabai, she was, your, you know, you told us all about Mirabai. You can have my handful of, of, of English versions. And he said, I won't do it unless you do half. So the book even has two introductions. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I know he just passed away recently. Yes, he did. Um, and it was a great loss because, you know, he shaped the entire landscape of poetry that I came up into as a young person was changed by Robert Bly's early devotion to world poetry, to bringing into American poetry, the South American poets, the Eastern European poets, the Scandinavian poets, uh, Rilke, Holderlin, Neruda, um, you know, I don't know what, what kind of universe of poetry I would have discovered if he and the friends who would go to his farm in northern Minnesota and work this all out, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, um, if they had not done what they had done, I think none of us would exist in the uh, literary world we now exist in. Wow. He was transformative. Wow. Wow. How do you see the, the current landscape in the world of poetry and, and how has it changed since when you, the days you're describing now with Robert Bly and when you came into, into that world? Well, it is, it is a great, poetry, the, the social world of poetry, the, the visible world of poetry, it's a very interesting thing being old enough to have seen it go through several large evolutions over the course of my life. So when I came of age, and this again was something that Robert was very much part of, poets were political activists, you know, the poets against the war were prominent, visible, covered in the New York Times, 
um, you know, Lawrence Ferlin Getty and and the the city lights poets, you know, uh, Ferlin Getty's Coney Island of the Mind sold a million copies. Every poet of my age has on their bookshelf usually two copies has somehow come to them because there were so many of them uh, going around. Um, Gary Snyder, similarly, you know, I learned a great deal of my understanding of ecosystem, I, I bioregion, watershed. These are concepts I learned first, not from the scientists, but from Gary Snyder telling me about them. Wendell Berry, similarly. So, so there was a great repository of wisdom, which I think has been less acknowledged than it might continue to be. You know, there are many current now uh, many of us write about about environmental and biosphere and climate and and toxin issues now, but I like to remember that, you know, Gary Snyder in I don't know the fifties or the sixties when he was working on an oil tanker as a very young man, wrote about the environmental devastation of oil extraction. Um, uh, the Norwegian poet Rolf Jakobsen has a gorgeous poem looking at the entire question of the ecosystem um, written in the 70s. Robinson Jeffers was seeing it in the 30s. You know, we have ancestors. That's very important to me. Um, I love honoring my, my ancestors and I love the poetry of the world. So American poetry now is, it is doing its similar explorations in other realms and other ways. Um, but in between, you know, there was the whole, there were the 1990s, there was deconstructionism and language poetry. And, and what's interesting is to be old enough to have seen some waves come through and leave. And what it has left me with is, a great sense that what the life of poetry is in individual poems. It's not in movement, movements come and go. Individual poems, some few of them take root and become the oak trees that mark the landscape. And that is what I care about the most. Um, not so much the trends, but the oak tree poems the poems that in a high wind you can go stand under. Um, but, you know, so people often ask, you know, do, do you think poetry is having a moment? And poetry is having a moment right now, but everything's having a moment right now with the internet, who can tell, you know, if you are ever um, at a loss for finding a bit of humility, just remember the 15 million people that any cute fat cat video will draw. Any cat video, 15 million people, not, not many poems. <laughs> and yet you probably can't shelter under a cat video 25 years. But if you find a poem you really love, it might be there for you when you need it. <laughs> I love that image of the oak trees. One of your, one of your poems that had a big moment and I think continues to is on the fifth day. Can you tell us a bit uh, how that came to be and then, and then maybe share it with us? Yeah. So on the fifth day was written, um, uh, everybody, you know, or many people think that the title is biblical and the biblical association isn't wrong, but um, the real reason it's titled on the fifth day is because it was written on the fifth day of um, our last president's administration. Um, and that was the day that the White House took down from their website um, every mention of climate change and just, you know, worse, not even just as bad, but worse, um, ordered every scientist in the country who was um, employed by the federal government not to speak to the public about their research unless what they said was vetted first by the appointee heads of their agencies. 
this to me was like censoring the poets. Um, it, it was personal, uh, not least because many of my closest friends are research scientists and have been for a long time now. And so in my stunned shock, I spent four years being stunned every single day. I never got over being stunned. I never got used to it. Um, but this was fairly early on amongst the stunnings. And I simply began writing this poem, you know, very much as I described writing the poem about the destruction of homes, um, because I didn't know how to take in this information except by writing. That evening after I'd finished it, I sent it to three scientist friends. Um, they immediately emailed back and said, can I send it to other scientist friends? And you know, by a couple of days later, I was getting messages back from Florida and Michigan and the Badlands. Um, about how from from you know scientists who'd received this by hand to hand transmission, how much it meant to them that it had been noticed. Then this is I'm sorry it's a long answer to your question, but oh, um, so on that same day the same thing which caused me to write this poem was what caused the first March for Science to constellate itself. The Women's March had already happened, the great, the enormous Women's March in Washington, DC. And so the scientists on their side, um, especially some young scientists in their thirties decided that they needed equally to do something. And they began organizing the March for Science. And when I heard about it, I couldn't quite help myself and, when they asked, you know, all the, they put out a call for volunteers by which they meant, you know, people to pick up the litter after the march. And I, in the little volunteer tab, I said, um, you know, I, I, I'd like to help you. Um, if you'd like to bring poetry into the march, I'd like, you know, I'd like to assist with that. And I gave them seven ideas of, of how poetry could be brought to the March for Science. And they took six of them. Um, and I think, you know, number five was, I have this poem and if you want to see it, I could read it, you know, let me know if you'd like to see it. So I ended up reading the poem um, on the Washington Mall to something like 40 or 50,000 people, which is not an experience a poet ever expects to have. Um, there, there was a poetry tent with human-sized banners. It was the beginning of the project, The Poets for Science, which is still alive and going from place to place. It was most recently at the Broad Institute, which is a neuroscience research institute, uh, collaborative between Harvard and MIT. And it's going next to Homer, Alaska, to the Pratt Museum there. And it's, you know, it's been in a medical school. It's, it's, it, it just, you know, it just keeps going places. So these human-sized science poetry banners and um, uh, writing invitations. My partner in this is Kent State's Wick Poetry Center, who are geniuses at uh, public engagement with, with poetry. Um, and so they, without them, I couldn't have so much as ordered tent to hold the workshops in on the mall. But anyhow, so that's all the background for, for this poem. It was then published the weekend before the march. It was given a full page in the Washington Post. And so that's how it first came into print. Wonderful. On the fifth day. On the fifth day, the scientists who studied the rivers were forbidden to speak or to study the rivers. The scientists who studied the air were told not to speak of the air. And the ones who worked for the farmers were silenced. And the ones who worked for the bees. Someone from deep in the badlands began posting facts. The facts were told not to speak and were taken away. The facts surprised to be taken were silent. Now it was only the rivers that spoke of the rivers and only the wind that spoke of its bees, while the unpausing factual buds of the fruit trees continued to move toward their fruit. The silence spoke loudly of silence and the rivers kept speaking of rivers, 
of boulders and air, bound to gravity, earless and tongueless, the untested rivers kept speaking. Bus drivers, shelf stockers, code writers, machinists, accountants, lab techs, cellists kept speaking. They spoke the fifth day of silence. Thank you. How did you start to connect with science? How did you first start connecting with science? Well, the earliest, you know, it's interesting because while I was interested in science courses in high school, um, you know, I never thought I was going to be a scientist. Um, I just liked them because everything was interesting. Um, um, but the first premonition was the earliest of my poems that I still give at public readings, written in 1982 um, at the end of my first, you know, long-term true, true love relationship, um, happened to have some physics imagery leap into it. And so that's just out of the blue, you know, there, there's no explaining why did I talk about the strong forces and weak forces of science in a poem written out of absolute devastation, um, but they came. And not that many years later, I began getting Another, I was invited into an interdisciplinary uh, conversation group that would meet from time to time called the Lindisfarne Association. And it was scientists and artists and people from spiritual realms. And that was where I discovered I really liked talking to scientists and learning from scientists. And after that, two other similar interdisciplinary groups. I mean, one was a book group, which was in fact pretty much all research scientists at the start who all knew each other, I found out, except for me, I was invited in by, you know, one friend and they all thought I was terribly brave to have said yes, but I thought it would be interesting to read books with people who weren't writers and outside of, you know, any academic context, just normal people, which is what I consider great research scientists, you know, normal people. Um, and, and then a second uh, similar group, which is really just a conversation group that's been meeting for over 20 years now. Um, and, and they just became more and more of my friends. Um, so geomorphologist who works on the Mars Rover project, um, uh, astrophysicist working on dark matter, um, the former president of the Ecological Society of America, who works on food web biology, molecular biologists, um, and, and uh, an olfaction specialist. You have no idea how interesting the nose is and how surprising the nose is. Um, and, and so uh, over the years, their work began to come into my work. Poets are magpies, and I would hear some little fact and um, it would just catch. And five years later, it might be exactly what I needed for a poem. And so, for example, in Ledger, there's a poem called Ant's Nest, which is about an ant's nest on the top of a redwood. And I know both the people whose research study land the redwood is on, and I know the um, tree ecologist who climbed to the top and saw in the canopy that there were ants' nests. And this was before anybody really knew that much about the canopy. Canopy biology has come a long way in the last 25 years. Um. Can we hear, can we hear ants' nest? Yeah, we can. It's on, if you have the page number, I don't know, but it's on page 17, I've got it here. Okay, so just to, you know, sometimes when you hear poems, it's things go by quicker than when you have them on the page. And I'll just say the first line is referring to a very famous early biology paper. Um, so, Ant's Nest. On being the right size, Haldane's short essay is titled, an ant's nest can be found at the top of a redwood. No bird that weighs less than, no insect more than. The minimum mass for a whale, for a language, an ice cap 
in a human-sized room, someone is setting a human-sized table with yellow napkins. Someone is calling her children to come in from a day where losses as yet remain, a day whose losses as yet remain child-sized. Size is one of those ideas that seems to magnetize my muse a little. In an earlier book, there's a poem called My Life Was the Size of My Life. In my next book, there's going to be a poem. I haven't quite settled between um, two titles, but, but one of them, uh, one of the possibilities is proportion. Um, you know, this weighing of things that cannot be weighed or compared against one another to me, that feels a great part of the, th the way a poem might want to think about questions of justice, questions of standing, questions of dignity, because they can't be weighed. They can't be compared. No being's dignity is larger or smaller than any other being's dignity. And yet our legal system, our political system is always arguing about these things. So this is a way that poetry can perhaps propose a different standard, a different measure, an, another way of thinking. Now I love the countries now which are beginning to give the natural world legal standing in their courts. Um, someday I think, uh, we will allow animals uh, some voice in their fate um, because we will understand the world differently. We won't divide ourselves so much from other lives, other human lives, other creaturely lives, even the rocks. I get a little radical about the rocks. <laughs> Yes, I, I can tell that you truly are in love with all of all of the world. Yeah. It's wonderful to see that in your work. Maybe, maybe before we get to some of the audience questions, you could read. I had circled this one actually. You mentioned dignity and ah. your poem titled My Dignity. Um I was really moved by the the way you point to the fragility of our dignity. Thank you. Do you have the page number? Yeah, page 62. Thank you. My dignity. My dignity drinks with me a cup of coffee with sugar and milk in a bathrobe. My dignity this day neither adds to nor subtracts from the dignity of any other. My dignity this one day closes its ledgers. Its luxury this day is coffee, sugar, and milk, is having enough to want nothing. Soon my dignity, unwitnessed, unwitnessing, will dress in clothes no one will judge for their wrinkles, in skin no one will judge for its fit. My dignity, I know, could be taken from me easily, invisibly, in a single pickpocketed instant. An errant driver, an errant rock, an errant anger. My own heart could take it. One moment drinking coffee, the next. My own breast or marrow could take it. But my dignity and I do not apologize to one another this day, nor this day profess to more than we can. I know I will someday say to my dignity, it's all right, I know it is time, leave if you must, live elsewhere. Take with you, like a good sous chef, your towel-wrapped knife and whetstone, your luck-bringing ladle. Thank you. 
if you're if you're open, we have some nice questions here from from our audience. Um, the first one is from Langston, who asks, "Would you be willing to speak about what the poem Let Them Not Say is pointing to in the in the last couple of lines? The poem turns in a surprising direction that touches me deeply." Hmm. So the last couple of lines, let them say, so I'll give you the last five lines. A kerosene beauty, let them, six, let them say as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. I'd like to thank Langston for noticing uh, what, what the poem is doing there. Um, so I have lived with kerosene lights and they're very beautiful. They were probably not very good for my long-term health because they put out a lot of fumes, um, but they're beautiful. Um, so a kerosene beauty it burned. We are burning our futures with our use of fossil fuels. Didn't know that back in the days that I was living by kerosene light. Um, didn't know it so clearly as we do now. But one must feel compassion for, we want light, we want warmth, we are mammals, we want comfort. It gave light, it gives light. We read by it. And so I am completely complicit. I have electric lights on right now. I'm, I'm not sure what they're powered by. I think Marin's pretty good, but nonetheless, it's electric lights. It's not solar. And I wanted to bring some compassion to our participation, all of our participation in this activity, which is both a conflagration of the future and is also human civilization doing what human civilization is doing it, is doing and human beings doing what human beings are doing. So I'm, I was trying to allow for the complexity of our actual existence, that the same thing which is burning the future is what, how I am speaking to you right now over technology which has been mined from fragile places using an instrument whose ethics I can't really know, who built this computer, who built this microphone, there's so much we don't know. And yet it is both a miracle and a problem. And I wanted to praise the miraculousness of it because I really liked having those kerosene lights when it was dark. I really liked them. <laughs> I hope that's some kind of answer. Wow, I'm, that's a lot. That's, that's a great answer, thank you. There's a question from um, Valerie who says, hello, Jane, wonderful to hear you. Can you say something about your experience of Zen and its influence in your work life? Thank you. Hmm. Small question. Um, <laughs> it's, it's such a big question. I will answer it more concisely than I did on the fifth day. <laughs> um, so, when I was a young person, I, I was in love with writing poems. I was in love with reading. And it turned out almost everything I really loved reading had somewhere within it the seed worldview that later I came to recognize was the worldview of Zen. Worldview of interconnection, worldview of transience, worldview of shared fate, worldview of attention is the key to the kingdom. And you can find this in 
the Roman poets Horace and Catullus. You can find it in Heraclitus. You can find it in Mesoamerican Nahuatl poetry. You can find it in the classical poems of China and Japan. And so something pulled me from the very beginning. The first book I ever bought, I was seven, eight years old. Um, I bought a book of Japanese haiku. I know enough about haiku now to know that I can't imagine what I was understanding at that age, reading those poems, except that it was offering me something I felt was missing. I was growing up in New York City and these short Japanese poems set in the natural world somehow spoke to that young girl's heart and soul straight through to my future. And so I ended up, I thought when I drove down the mountain road to the wilderness monastery of Tassajara in 1974, um, I thought I was just curious. I knew it was the only Zen monastery that then existed in America. And uh, once I realized that there was something there that I could participate in, I thought I'd stay a few months until I understood about what I thought of then as this Buddhism business. And after a few months, what you understand is you understand nothing. And so I stayed for eight years. And I feel, you know, those years are in some way the diamond at the center of my life. In another way, I feel they are the left foot and the right foot of my walking. But I also feel it quite important. I don't like being uh, labeled a Zen poet because I'm not a Zen poet, I'm a human poet. I make very few references to anything um, explicitly Zen, less than many poets who have never crossed their legs or sat on a meditation cushion. And I feel like anything that can be learned from Zen can be learned from being a human being. That just happens to be the path of study that was available to me and that I was drawn to. Um, but there are many paths of study. And I think a human truth is a human truth, uh, whatever vocabulary you put it in. Thank you, Jean. There's a nice question from Elizabeth who says, hi, Jean. How do you reconcile regular life, buying food, making life's arrangements, clearing up the kitchen with your work and art is it always on your mind or does it come and go? <laughs> I'm afraid it's more the art that has to come and go. Um, I'm, um, I'm a very bad example of navigating these issues. Everybody has to navigate them. And, and um, uh, I, have, I am a person who thrives under conditions of deep concentration. I think because of that monastic training um, that I spent my 20s uh, in concentrated undistraction doing just one thing. Um, and so that is the way I work best as a poet. And it is not very available to me. If you hear a small meowing, there's a cat who suddenly is crying for attention. So we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, and there you have it. You know, if a cat cries for attention, you give the cat your attention because <laughs> the cat is crying. And I think that is the microcosm answer to this question. <laughs> if I have to buy groceries, no, I'm not writing a poem. <laughs> if, I, if I'm sending out political letters and postcards, which I did every day for the four years of the last presidency, I took some action, some outward action to try to add one, one decibel to the chorus, one molecule of pressure on the tiller of we've got to change our direction. And that really mattered to me. It was not something I could set aside. Um, and if I wrote a poem or if I gave a reading and I was talking about these things, that counted as, as that day's action. Um, but for me, it is, it is a difficult thing to navigate. And all I can say is if I go too long, I'm not a person who writes every day if I'm not at an artist retreat. Um, 
If I go too long without writing, I begin to miss it the way you would miss seeing the person you love most in the world. Um, and when I begin to miss it that badly, I know it will return. But often I write when I have something to say. I write when I have to write. And I'm not a very good writer if I try to force myself to. Many of my friends um, are daily writers. If you're able to do it, I think it's better. You keep your instrument in tune. Um, you make more accidental discoveries. Um, but I can only do that from time to time under the right conditions because I have to be so vulnerable to write a poem. I have to take off my first skin, my second skin, my third skin, my fourth skin. And if I also have to remember that, oh, at 1.30, I need to go leave for such and such an appointment, I can't afford to take those skins off. Um, so that's how it is for me. Don't follow my example. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I think we have time for one more audience question. This is from this is from Tim, who says, Jane, you are acquainted with the various traditions of poetic form and style. What do you notice about the way poems are presenting themselves to us today? Where do you see innovation that deserves attention? Who are three newer poets who might offer us clues of emergence? Yeah. Um, marvelous question. I always dread the list because I'll think of somebody after, after we're not online anymore and I'll say, why didn't I say? Um, I think we are at a time of uh, profoundly interesting both expression of subject. Okay, slight backtrack. I believe that the entire history of lyric poetry is a history of including more and more subject matters into the lyric poem. Um, you can't think of any poem in Western literary history, I don't know the rest of the world well enough to say, in which a father is talking about fatherhood and having children until the middle of the 20th century. That's one example of the expansion of the lyric poem. And right now we are in explosive uh, expansion of who gets to speak, who gets to tell the story, what language do they tell it in and how do they tell it? So it's a really exciting moment that way. And the same people who are bringing in uh, the new voices and the new histories and the new lineages and the new traditions and the hybridity of all of that are also experimenting powerfully with how they are working with the materials. And so I will give as two examples of that first, and then I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out desperately what's the third best example <laughs> to give. Um, but two examples of that are the newest book uh, by, by Kaveh Akbar. I happen to, it's totally accident. I didn't plan this. It's sitting right here. So Pilgrim Bell is Kaveh. This is the, the reader's, advanced reader's copy, but, but that's what it looks like. And in this book, he has a great many poems that use the, the punctuation mark in original and distinctive ways um, to make the phrases be set off and independent and hold their own the same way that many years ago Alice Notley was doing with with parentheses marks um, so that's and and he's just you know he's been a poet who has been thrilling to me since since the first poem of his I stumbled across I sort of stopped and went who's this um, similarly um, in a very different way, very different way of a, an, a unique presentation of the materials. Um, uh, Ilya Kaminsky's most recent book, Deaf Republic, and that's a couple of years old, but I consider a couple of years old still quite new, and just a stunning presentational, dramatic, lyrically um, punch in the diaphragm exploration. Um, and Ilya, for anyone who doesn't know him, uh, 
uh, came to America from Odessa as a teenager and has been profoundly deaf since early childhood um, uh, because of, I think it was untreated measles, something like that. And, and yet there is such, there is no and yet about it. He has in this second language, uh, English, the musicality and force of his work is, is incredible. And then, you know, the third younger poet who's, because I'm trying to move around the map of it, um, Danusha Lameris is, is a poet who I just think is extraordinary. And she is a poet of um, Dutch Barbados heritage uh, and, and um, lives here in California. And she is writing poems that just, you know, explore the world in lyrics which are rich and diverse and informative. She's the least experimental of the three I'm giving, but I wanted to give you poems of different aesthetics because sometimes the new is not um, necessarily new on the surface. Uh, it's not necessarily that it looks different on the page. Uh, the new is um, new perceptions in any form. The cat is meowing wildly. I think he has another poet he'd like to suggest, but yeah, I didn't yeah, hey, cat, so I can't yeah. say. Um, <laughs> you just saw his tail pass yes. behind me. <laughs> okay, um, what, what, what else? <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, that that's an amazing um, description of those three poets being put on the spot like that and being able to um, speak on each of them with such depth. Thank you. Um, we're getting towards the end of our time and, and uh, it would be lovely to close with a poem. I'll just take a moment to thank our, our live audience for being here and for all of your wonderful questions. It's, it's so great to have people here live and to be uh, engaging and participating like that. A big thanks to Jacob Steele, our, our podcast producer and events curator who does so much for Banyan Books. Um, and to Colin Limworth, the owner of Banyan, who's been at it for 50 years and still going strong. Um, and of course, all the staff at Banyan Books. And Jane Hirschfield, uh, it's really, really an honor and a, and a delight to speak to you this evening. Um, just so everybody knows, again, we're, we've been speaking about her newest book titled Ledger. And of course, it's available at banyan.com. Thank you. And out in paperback now. Um, so, okay. Um, so when we talked about closing with a poem, uh, we, were, we, were, we were saying, you know, what from Ledger? And I said, well, maybe I should read a new poem. Um, and so this is a poem written since the book. So here's an early view of the next book, whatever that will end up being. Uh, it's a poem called, I Would Like. I would like my living to inhabit me the way rain, sun, and their wanting inhabit a fig or apple. I would like to meet it also in pieces, scattered, a conversation set down on a long hallway table, a disappointment pocketed inside a jacket, some long ago irritation glimpsed, half recognized in the corner of a thrift store painting. To discover my happiness walking first toward, then away from me down a stairwell on two strong legs all its own also the uncountable wheat stalks. How many times broken, beaten, before entering the marriage of oven and bread. Let me find my life in that too. In my moments of clumsiness, solitude, in days of vertigo and hesitation, in the many year ends that found me standing on top of a stovetop to take down a track light, in my nights asked, sometimes answered, questions. I would like to add to my life while we are still living, a little salt and butter, one more slice of the edible apple, a teaspoon of jam 
from the long simmered fig to taste as if something tasted for the first time what we will have become then. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Wow, thank you, Jane Hirschfield. It's been so good to have you. Thank you.